Hello and welcome to Sludge, an American healthcare story. This is the podcast about the broken and biased healthcare system in the U.S. My name is Caitlin Durante, and I am officially sludge-free, but there's still a lot of sludge out there in the medical industry, and we are here to expose it and try to help get rid of it. Just the usual disclaimer, I am not a medical professional. Uh, I'm not here to give any medical advice. I'm just a regular person dealing with this crummy healthcare system. My guest today is a qualified addictions therapist in the UK, a holistic health coach in the US, and the world's first intersex comedian, Seven Graham. Hi. Hello there. Hi. It's thank lovely you. to be here. Yes. Thank you for being here. I'm so excited to talk to you. So, Seven, in a sentence or two, just to kind of get us started, could you just give me a brief overview about your situation, circumstances, all that kind of stuff, and then we'll do a a deeper dive into your story. Sure. Um, Well, it says female on my birth certificate, Mm -hmm. and I was raised female. Mm -hmm. I had a female name and female pronouns. Um, When I was 24 years old, I discovered that um, some surgery I'd had when I was a child, when I was eight years old, when I'd been told that I had cancerous ovaries, uh, which were removed, Mm -hmm. that was actually not true. And instead, I'd had internal testes, Mm. and I'm an intersex person. Mm -hmm. Now, in society, we're told that everybody's either male or female, biologically, you know, in terms of our sex. Um, and that's actually a biological lie. Right. <laughs> there are two poles, male and female, uh, which we're now calling, you know, the cisgenders. Um, uh-huh. And uh, between those exist many different combinations of what it's possible to be. Absolutely. In terms of your physical body and also, of course, as we know now, genders as well. There's, mm-hmm. a, a, you know, a million different genders that people can have as well. But this is important biologically because... Actually, it's quite common. We're told that it's incredibly rare, Mm -hmm. but actually intersex people are as common as red hair and green eyes. So Mm -hmm. everybody listening to this podcast who may think intersex, this doesn't, you know, what does this mean? And why is it relevant to me? You probably have met an intersex person, but intersex people are are usually operated on when we're children by doctors. Our parents are often coerced or told, you know, a a kind of story that, oh, don't worry, we're going to fix this. There's a problem with your child, but Uh we'll fix it. Uh, And then the child is in encouraged strongly to fit into the box that they're assigned to Mm -hmm. which causes all sorts of problems because many people don't feel that they fit into that box or wonder why they don't feel right Right. in the box Uh that they've been given yeah okay so that gives us a lot to talk about (laughs) (laughs) so for for any listeners who i mean you did a a great overview just there but if if there are any listeners who who still aren't quite familiar with the term intersex can you just dive a little bit deeper and explain a little bit more what that is yeah it's actually super complicated Mm -hmm. (laughs) so i encourage people if you like what you hear or you're interested in what you hear in this podcast please take some time to google intersex and have a look online and also go to interact advocates Mm -hmm. are a fantastic resource especially for young people that's um, an organization run by intersex people um, speaking for themselves mm-hmm. because the thing is I have a particular version of intersex I'm, I've got something called androgen insensitivity syndrome uh-huh. that's about one in 30,000 live births are androgen insensitive like I am but there are many different forms of intersex there mm-hmm. are many common forms of intersex and they all have their own different combination of things and different treatment modalities and different trauma mm-hmm. um, my, my trauma was I was born with testes which were 
were perfectly healthy testes. My parents and I weren't given the choice to keep those testes. Mm -hmm. They told my parents, as I said, that I had cancerous ovaries. The reality is that these testes were perfectly healthy and the chance of them becoming cancerous was less than the chance of a young girl's breast becoming cancerous. Mm -hmm. So the policy of automatically removing testes in children uh, who are deemed to be more female it's a completely cosmetic and gender policing form of surgery Uh Um, and the consequence of that surgery for me was that I got put on artificial hormones when I was 12 years old I got put on estrogen at age 12 um, and they had no idea what the long-term implications of that were going to be because I'm the first generation because I'm I'm pretty old (laughs) that was operated on in 1977 and Uh I turned 50 this year so I'm one of the first generation of people to have been on estrogen that long and actually Actually, about 18 months ago, my body completely rejected estrogen. Wow, um, yeah. And I was starting to get really severe physical consequences because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, my Hercules heel started breaking down. Wow. I started to get lots of pain in my ligaments. And I thought I was heading for a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was at that point that after nine months of resisting going to see a doctor, because I still have intense fear of medical environments of and doctors because of being betrayed and lied to by the people you're supposed to trust the most. Uh-huh. Um, when I eventually went to the LA LG. BT Center medical facilities and met a doctor that I really trusted, Mm -hmm. a really lovely doctor. I found out my body was rejecting uh, estrogen. And at that point, I volunteered to go on to testosterone shots. In theory, I'm completely immune to testosterone, but actually, as we can see from the slight facial stubble I've got (laughs) here today, I'm not completely immune to testosterone, so Uh I'm mystifying endocrinologists at the moment. (laughs) And I've also got some other very exciting things happening to my body, which we might want to talk about. Sure, whatever you're comfortable sharing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm talking on stage about how my clitoris just just keeps getting bigger, so Mm -hmm. I think I can share that with your podcast (laughs) listeners too, if they're interested. Sure. This is all very helpful context. And as you said, it, it occurs quite frequently. Yes. Um, I read one in every 2,000 people. Yes, even one in 1,500. Okay. That, that's the, the most common So stat. it's very common. <laughs> yes. And so from my understanding, and you touched on this a little bit al- already, is that one of the major things that intersex people face, or at least one of the first things, is doctors foisting this binary idea of sex and gender on an intersex person. Uh, And this often means that doctors will insist on performing, quote unquote, normalizing surgery on the intersex person to either remove or reconstruct various parts of their reproductive system Mm -hmm. to make them appear more male or more female. Yes, absolutely. So and uh, in terms of surgery and what doctors are capable of, they have a lovely expression, which is it's easier to make a hole than a pole. I've heard this before. Most intersex babies emerge from the operating theater as girls. Uh huh. Because surgery usually happens on babies or children, they're not able to give consent or really understand the scope of what's happening to them and or they are not told about it at all. And as you said, you discovered later on that you are intersex and you weren't given a choice. Your, Your parents were told lies. So this comes with a whole slew of issues. Some we've already mentioned, like this the surgery being done without any 
medical reasons or justification, the doctors making up excuses more or less, like saying, you know, your testes will become cancerous, um, even if there's no scientific evidence to support that. Medical professionals making this decision for intersex people that they, like we said, are not able to consent to. Oftentimes, um, parents are not consulted or are lied to about the reasons for the surgery many intersex people not knowing that they're intersex until later in life and then just the idea that medical professionals feel the need to operate within this narrow binary system of a baby quote needing to present as male or female and then treating intersex as a problem that needs to be corrected, uh, which of course perpetuates all this stigma and prejudice against intersex people. So, yes. yeah. And it also shores up heterosock, as my friend Derek Jarman called it. Mm-hmm. You know, this fantasy that we're all going back to Adam and Eve and the fairy story of, of Genesis. Yeah. You know, the fantasy that we're all either male or female and made this way by God. Right. So therefore... Which, which is a funny story when it comes to intersex people because it's if you follow that logic through, it's then saying that intersex people are mistakes, that, you know, we've mm. come out of the kiln kind of half-baked or something. <sighs> uh-huh. um, and in fact, doctors, when intersex people started standing up for ourselves mm-hmm. uh, in the 80s, and more recently as we started to develop effective campaigning and started to take social media by storm. Yeah. And I'll talk about the film Pony Boy, which I've recently executive produced, and River Gallo, the incredible young intersex actor who's starting to make waves in mm-hmm. Hollywood, Glad's rising star of 2019. Oh, nice. Uh, as we've started to speak up for ourselves, doctors rebranded intersex disorders of sexual development, which they've abbreviated to DSD. Oh. How pathologizing and uh, labeling in a very unpleasant way is uh-huh. calling somebody a disorder of sexual development. Right. It very much moved the goalpost to stigmatize us and say that we were broken and that they need to fix us. <laughs> and I'm sure in terms of the other stuff that you've examined in your podcast, this is a mindset, a medicalizing mindset, which seeks to legitimize their business. And uh-huh. it is a business in the United States. Let's yes. not forget that. <laughs> uh-huh. um, which involves people having to spend money for surgery and treatment, which is lifelong in the case of intersex people often, especially Mm -hmm. when you remove their ability to produce hormones. So they're on artificial hormones. You know, it's, is creating is creating work for themselves, right. which is incredibly immoral and completely <laughs> counter to the Hippocratic Oath. Yes, yes. Th- we've explored that to some degree uh, already on the podcast. But yes, this is very much a capitalist industry in the US, at least. And I am curious if you have any insight about, because you know, you're born and raised in the UK. You've lived here for how long? December 2015, I moved here. Okay, so a few years. Yep, can't do an American accent. Still, <laughs> um, it's ugly. So why would why would you? Sure, yeah, there's certain American accents which I find very sexy. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so yeah, do you have any insight in terms of how this is approached by medical professionals in terms of like when an intersex person is born, how it's treated differently in the UK versus the US? Sure. Any insight about that? Well, I actually saw the world eminent gynecologist in the 70s, mm-hmm. uh, a man called Sir John Professor Dewhurst, okay. who was basically God in a white coat. He'd mm. been knighted by Her Majesty the Queen. Mm-hmm. Um, he 
was the world eminent gynecologist as recognized by the fact that his book Dewhurst Guide to Gynecology and Obstetrics is still the bible that students around the world study wow. it's now edited by a different physician because he died mm-hmm. um, he was a fairly elderly gentleman when I saw him but um, he was very much the guy who literally used my body and his other intersex patients in the 70s to train doctors from all around the world to diagnose intersex and how to medically treat it in speech marks Uh you know so I literally through my childhood from uh eight years old I saw every time I saw him which was every six months I had my body paraded in front of 15 to 20 students from around the world and he showed them how to diagnose and told them about the surgery, et cetera, et cetera. So this is part of why I'm so passionate about raising awareness uh, mm-hmm. about intersex conditions, intersex variations, mm-hmm. and saying we need to stop this surgery and empower parents and educate parents to be able to say no to doctors and to let children decide what their gender is for themselves Mm -hmm. Um, part of the kind of um, passion I have to do that is because I know that I was used to literally train the generation of doctors who are now in charge around the world and this is a global policy by um, you know what we call western medicine but that medical system is a system that's used all over the world Um, it's a system which is being challenged notably in Europe and um, there's a very big intersex activist community in America. Mm-hmm. But as you pointed out, the medical system in America is incredibly uh, tied in with capitalism mm-hmm. and money making mm-hmm. and the insurance companies and everything. And so although we live in California and California is at the cutting edge in terms of looking at gender and giving people things like driver's license, which can have a non-binary marker, which is fantastic. Yeah. And there's a senator here in California called Senator Scott Weiner, who is um, leading the legislation change or, the, or writing new legislation to stop doctors doing the surgery. Uh-huh. But recently the doctors, uh, through their lobbying committee, have started to really fight back and they're trying to say that people like myself are a disenfranchised um, minority of intersex people for whom we you know we had bad experiences but that the majority of intersex people are perfectly happy with the treatment that they received Mm. uh, which isn't the case it's just most intersex people are so traumatized that surgery we talked about it's because it's on the genitals Mm -hmm. um that's akin to rape trauma for children and babies. Sure. So when you have uh, done something to a child that is akin to them being raped by their doctor, then it's no wonder that these people turn to drugs and alcohol and self-harming mm-hmm. and live in such great shame that they don't speak up. They don't have the inner resources to speak up for themselves and challenge doctors, mm-hmm. especially when they're still receiving ongoing care and speech marks uh-huh. from these doctors. And they have question marks over their long-term health and whether they're going to live to, you know, be an old person or, Mm -hmm. you know, fear. You know, as an intersex person, you do feel like you're a laboratory rat having had their surgery and their medical interventions. You do then feel like you are kind of... um, when you have a question mark over your future in terms of you don't know whether you're going to get stuff like breast cancer or uh-huh. whether you're going to need another surgery because some of these operations that they do on kids, they don't work and then they have to do multiple surgeries mm-hmm. and then people get scar tissue yeah. and all sorts of complications. And so the doctors who are performing these surgeries in the US are incentivized to do it because they can make money off of it. 
Yes. I mean, if you've got an intersex patient that you perform surgery on, then there's a good chance that you're going to have a a patient for life. Mm -hmm. Um, And I always try and look at things from both sides or from multiple sides. And I also believe in looking for the good in people and situations. And my doctor, I know he was a good doctor. I know he was a caring doctor. I don't think he, and he wasn't just, you know, he he wasn't just doing it for the money because he was a National Health Service doctor. Um, you know, he was getting mm-hmm. paid as a specialist, no matter what what he was doing within the field of gynecology and obstetrics. Right. However, I do think that doctors often, not all, but a lot of doctors have a kind of codependency, untreated desire to kind of play God in a, in a sense, a mm-hmm. desire to have power and a desire to be loved by their patient and their patient's parents. And so, you know, we live in a society which places such great emphasis on male and female. It's like the first question that a parent is asked, what is your se- the sex of your baby? Is it a little mm-hmm. girl? Is it a little boy? Yeah. We even have these gender reveal parties now. You know, is <sighs> it pink or is it yeah. blue? You know, there's no possibility in that for it to be anything other than a boy or a girl. Mm-hmm. So there is a societal pressure uh, which parents feel and which families feel. And doctors, you know, can play God they can be the good person by saying don't worry you know this may look like unlike something you've seen before Mm -hmm. but we're going to sort this out for you and your child is normal you know so they get a lot of kudos for doing that for being that kind of caped crusader with the surgical scalpel Mm -hmm. person and I think that some doctors do genuinely believe that society is just men and women and that they're doing a good job by making everybody fit into those boxes, mm-hmm. you know. Oh, but goodness, are they wrong? <laughs> they are. And and to give you one, to bring it into a sense of reality, one of the assumptions that they make, and this is so heterosexist and so anti-female pleasure, one of the assumptions they make is that a little girl who's born with a big clitoris, uh-huh. if it's too big she might not get a husband when she grows up because all men you know i want their woman to look normal Mm. and a big clitoris could be threatening to that so they would rather cut off or surgically hide in a really complex piece of surgery that can Mm. often go wrong Mm -hmm. they would rather do that surgery than let a little girl grow up with a big clitoris how sexist is this if a father if a child is born with a big penis everybody slaps each other on the back the men get the cigars out oh my god look he takes after his father this is fantastic Mm. nobody's so happy about a girl having a big clitoris no I uh, I have a big clitoris as I shared and I was born with a big clitoris but it was deemed to be within the acceptable range uh-huh. when I was a child and now I'm on testosterone it's grown about two inches and is continuing to grow and if I hadn't done all that healing work on myself and if I hadn't kind of got to a place in terms of gone through depression so bad and been so suicidal for a period of time that I got to a place of recognizing that being healthy and happy is more important than anything else, mm-hmm. that it's better for me to accept myself and be here in whatever form my body takes yeah. than to reject myself and, and kill myself, which is where my depression took me. Mm-hmm. You know, Having gone through that kind of dark night of the soul, I'm completely happy with my body doing whatever it needs to do in order to be me and to be happy Mm -hmm. and in the last year I've done this thing called Project Panda Mm -hmm. which is a kind of anthropology kind of experiment stroke mission to uh, educate myself and Hollywood about human sexuality Mm -hmm. and I've deliberately put it out there on social uh, on dating apps that I am an intersex person Uh you know that I was born with a vagina I've got 38 double D boobs (laughs) but I also have this big clitoris that keeps getting bigger 
to see whether it would be repulsive to the men of LA mm-hmm. and to see where I'm, I'm, I'm open to sleeping with people across the gender spectrum, yeah. you know, just good people with nice hearts and, and, you know, who are fun and who I get on with, mm-hmm. you know, I'm very open-minded about who would be a sexual partner or who would be a partner, although I'm not looking for love right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm finding, and of course this is completely unscientific uh, because I am more than my clitoris, but I'm finding that nobody is rejecting my body in the way that I reject me and that nobody mm-hmm. I've met would agree with the doctors that it would be better to cut off my clitoris. Most of the people that I'm meeting think it's fantastic that I have a big clitoris. That's great. I'm so happy to hear that. And that's the advocacy that you're doing is just so important because as you said, you know, you were having suicidal ideation and depression, which of course anyone would when their trusted doctors again are foisting these very patriarchal cisgender heterosexist views on the world and their patients so it's great that you're empowering others to be visible and happy and healthy so thank you yes (laughs) it's a tough job and somebody's got to do it someone's got to do it (laughs) we're going to take a quick break and then we will come right back so i'm curious what issues if any have you had with doctors along the way or other healthcare professionals anytime you've you know needed to seek medical attention for whatever reason have you experienced prejudice bias um you know confusion uh, about your sex or your gender anything like that yeah the most common thing that i as an intersex person experience is that I will get when I go and see a new doctor is that they don't have a clue what intersex is. Interesting. So I, throughout my life, have been in the situation where I've often had to sit and spend the first five to ten minutes of a consultation with a medical professional telling them about what androgen insensitivity syndrome is and even what intersex is. Wow. Yeah. So that doesn't really inspire one for the rest of the treatment that might be on offer if they don't even know what your condition is. Right. That is alarming. And I wouldn't have expected that. Wow. Okay. Then I quickly discovered that endocrinology, um, the specialist area related to hormones, is as much an art as it is a science. Hmm. There's so much about the hormonal system that we just don't have the answers to. Mm -hmm. So little research is done on female bodies, let alone intersex people, that, yeah, of course they don't have enough information. Mm. That's wild. I also think that it's really uh, one of the things which I've sought to do in terms of my, my political advocacy work is build relationships with the trans community. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some people in the trans community may have felt fearful about intersex people sharing their experience. Mm. Um, but I say to the trans community, doctors can't have it both ways. They say to trans teenagers, oh no, we can't intervene. We can't block your hormonal process. Uh-huh. That's got to happen. That's got to carry on till you're 18 years old. Then if you still this feel this way when you're 18 years old, uh, you know, when your body's developed in a way that you completely didn't want it to, mm-hmm. then come back and see us and we'll talk about, you know, possibly doing something at that stage and uh-huh. maybe we'll do some surgery. But obviously surgery is irreversible and it's very, very serious. That is completely the opposite message to how they right. treat intersex babies and children. Uh-huh. Um, so I think that intersex people and trans people and the parents of intersex and trans kids need to get together yes. uh, and say to doctors, you know, okay, what's really which the story? Which is it? Yeah. yeah, which is it? You can't have it both ways. Right. Um, 
Yeah, I also think that my experience, because from an early age when I was a kid, I knew that I wasn't female. Mm -hmm. I never felt female. I used to call myself a tomboy when I was a kid, but from a very early age, I rejected female toys. Uh, I wanted to play with a G.I. Joe or Action Man, as we call it in Mm -hmm. England. Uh, I had a black commando bicycle. Mm -hmm. Thank you to my parents for listening (laughs) to me uh, on that one and letting me have my dream bike. Um, I desperately wanted to have short hair. I hated having long hair with pigtails. Uh I hated dresses, all of that stuff. Um, You know, I had a massive battle with my mother through my childhood because I had gender dysphoria around wearing female stuff. Sure. So actually, if doctors had listened to me, if my doctor had listened to me as a child, telling me that I was intersex would have actually really helped me because it would have made sense of my experience of my gender. Yeah. And actually, I think it also says some interesting things because I looked female. You know, I was born with a little vagina, born with a clitoris. Mm -hmm. I physically looked female. Right. But, you know, my gender wasn't that. Right. And the the fact that I have, you know, actual physical reasons, uh, you know, my brain is interesting. Again, neuroscience is another area of science that we're growing (laughs) Mm -hmm. our knowledge base exponentially each year as we get better at at looking at how the brain functions in real time Mm -hmm. uh, with the tools that we have now. But again, neuroscience is an area that is still very much in its infancy. um, And they really would struggle to be able to tell you in terms of scanning my brain why it was that I had those beliefs about myself gender-wise as a child. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say that probably uh, it's something to do with exposure to testosterone in the womb. Um, and although I'm androgen sensitive, I would say my brain knows that it was more of a male brain. I was born yeah. with XY chromosomes. I was born with testes. Mm-hmm. My brain feels more male than female. Yeah. And actually, since I've been on testosterone, that again has been really interesting because some of the real stereotypes around uh, around what it is to be a man and some of the cliches and also some of the ways that we're kind of being negative about men and male sexuality I'm experiencing those now as somebody mm. who felt more sexually female and looked more sexually female. Mm-hmm. You know, that's changing. Yeah. And my sexuality has really changed since I've been on testosterone. Mm-hmm. And I'm much more like a man now sexually. Yeah. Uh, and what that looks like is ideally I would have sex every day. Mm-hmm. I don't get so emotionally involved. I find it very easy to, you know, have a friends with benefit and, mm-hmm. you know, see that person fairly regularly and then not want to move in with them. <laughs> <laughs> settle down for the rest of my life I mean emotional intimacy is scary so I get it <laughs> um, but I used to be I mean I've been married to two women you know uh-huh. and I used to be the cliche when I thought I was a lesbian which uh-huh. I did from the age of 17 to 24 so imagine how shocking it was to discover I'd had those testes and I thought I was going to get kicked out of the lesbian gang which was a very real fear mm-hmm. um, you know but I used to be the cliche of a lesbian you know what does a lesbian take on a second date you haul right you hauling <laughs> Um, are there any other issues that you've known of other intersex people to have to deal with in terms of receiving medical care or anything along those lines? Yeah. I mean, I think that my, my situation, I feel like I, I've, I've had an easy, you know, although it's been very traumatic in its own way. And certainly, um, when I checked, when I wrote a play, Angels Are Intersex, when I um, came to America in 2017, it was performed at the Sun, it was performed, I performed it at the Sun <laughs> Assembly Festival. Um, and writing that play really connected me with the grief around my loss of my testicles, mm-hmm. around the fact that I discovered um, about a year ago that with modern IVF techniques, I could actually potentially have been fertile 
that wasn't the case when that surgery mm. happened to me. But, mm-hmm. you know, science has advanced so much. Um, so effectively, I was um, sterilized, you know, without huh. permission, uh-huh. um, which which obviously uh, has grief attached to it. Of course. Um, but when I changed my name and my pronouns, I discovered this just how much my male my male side had been repressed from childhood and how much my whole life had been affected, you know, like going on testosterone, I discovered it was like kind of being put on the right fuel for the first time in my life. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I came alive. So it's kind of like I'd been um, drugged by estrogen my whole life, put on the wrong substance that Mm -hmm. kind of just made me feel like not myself. And that's happening to most intersex people. But some intersex people have had surgery, which means that they're not able to have sexual pleasure oh. or that they're physically so harmed that you know having any kind of a sex life isn't possible yeah. you know it's hard to have a sex life when they've removed your clitoris right um, that's so horrible and the doctors who again who are performing these surgeries because again it's not all doc hashtag not all doctors but the it's, ones it is it is standard policy <laughs> it's standard right it's standard yeah. procedure if you go to any any children's hospital if you go anywhere that has the care of uh, babies and children, this is standard policy, mm-hmm. you know, and this this is policy that the United Nations has actually condemned as the torture of babies and children. They actually use that word. Mm-hmm. Uh, they condemn the United Kingdom and Nepal for surgery on babies and children, mm-hmm. two very different countries, you know, Nepal right. um, and, and the United Kingdom. So it has been called torture by the United Nations, but it is standard policy in big hospitals in America to do the surgery and very few clinicians very few doctors are speaking out Mm -hmm. Um, there was one recently in Austin on World Intersex Awareness Day uh, a a pediatrician from Austin Texas stood up and apologized to the intersex community Hmm. and having spoken at the Keck Medical School and spoken to trainee doctors at those places that are taking an interest and listening to intersex advocates um, I know that the next generation, the people who are in school now, who've mm-hmm. got an understanding of gender and, uh, you know, who've got non-binary colleagues in the class mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, who understand queer theory and yeah. have an awareness of feminism. I know that generation of doctors will get how appalling this is yes. and will also think, you know, WTF, how did this <laughs> happen? Uh-huh. But it's it's going to be a hard slog to get the older doctors to change because, in changing and challenging the protocol, then it's kind of a time of reckoning in terms of realizing the damage that they as doctors have have done. done. And of course, some of these doctors really did this in good will. They really kind of read the papers by people like um, Sir John Professor Dewhurst Mm -hmm. and thought they were doing the right thing. Right. And of course, then in this country, the other thing that's going to be very scary is thoughts about legal action, litigation. Uh It's like if you change the policy now, that's admitting that you were wrong Wrong. to be doing what you were doing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then what kind of a legal nightmare is that going to create? That Yeah, I hadn't even fully considered or appreciated that, but... Absolutely. And, and right, because doctors, you know, they swear an oath to care for their patients and not do damage to them. But by performing these surgeries, they've absolutely done so much damage. Yeah. And yeah. And I would say to any doctor listening to this podcast or any friend of a doctor or any nurse, it's one thing to be doing this in ignorance. 
but to hear an intersex person say to you that this surgery harmed them to the point that they have been suicidal, that they had a 20-year drug addiction, and that that's a common experience. Mm -hmm. You know, I've got many, many intersex friends and colleagues around the world um, who I'm in correspondence with, and that is a common experience. That intersex people self-harm, we have addictions, and many of us kill ourselves as a consequence of this surgery. Mm -hmm. So for you to hear this message from me, to go into work tomorrow morning and carry on being part of this, you have to take responsibility. Mm -hmm. This surgery has to stop now. It's going to take a while for the legislation to change because there's going to be a lot of vested interests who fight changes in legislation. But everybody who is a part of this surgery has to stop that now. You actually have to put your hand up and say, I'm not going to be part of this mm -hmm. because otherwise history is going to judge you mm -hmm. and intersex people will judge you yeah you literally have the blood of our lives on your hands if you carry on taking part in this surgery so i implore everybody who is part of this to stop doing it today mm -hmm. so do i and i hope every doctor hears this because this message absolutely needs to get out there and and I have a feeling that, I mean, based on you just saying that you have to explain what intersex is to many doctors that you've seen, I have a feeling that there's just not enough awareness uh, out there. And, and even if there is awareness, there's maybe not enough listening to the advocacy at this point in time. I'm hoping that this changes very soon. And like you, you mentioned, you know, the, the, this new generation of, you know, medical students and, and younger doctors are, are hopefully doing something to affect change. But, you know, it can't happen soon enough. So in an ideal world, how do you envision the way intersex is treated medically? The surgery is absolutely eliminated or are there any intersex people who potentially would elect to have surgery later on when they can actually consent to it? Yeah. There are some intersex conditions where there are urological problems, mm -hmm. you know, plumbing problems, sure. to put it at its basic kind of level. In those instances where something's not working mm -hmm. and it's physically dangerous, of course, something has to be done. Sure. But those are very, very small in terms of the overall surgery picture. Uh -huh. Um I would say it's really important to delay surgery for as long as possible mm -hmm. to really make sure that a child can understand what their options are. Also, gender evolves and changes. Mm -hmm. People go through different stages. You don't, until your hormones kick in as a teenager, you don't really know who you are until you've had some life experiences, until mm -hmm. you've had a few different partners, until, you, until you've gone out in the world. You know, So I would say we strongly need to encourage surgery to be delayed for as long as possible. Mm -hmm. I'm aware that we're going to be in a, a liminal period while culture catches up with the fact that intersex people exist. Yeah. This is why I'm living in Hollywood because I very much believe in be the change. And I think one of the things that we need to happen is that we need to have intersex stories told in yes. film, television, podcasts, books, everything, mm -hmm. so that every single human being knows that some babies and children are born intersex and that's perfectly normal and perfectly natural. I'm very confident in my lifetime that we can do that communication 
job it's a big job and everybody can be a part of that change mm -hmm. everybody can t educate themselves after this podcast tell their friends tell their family and be part of this change I'm also aware that I have a particular intersex perspective there are intersex people who want to be and believe that they are male or female mm -hmm. or trans you know I believe that my gender is intersex and I use non-binary pronouns mm -hmm. and I have a non-binary name that's my experience um, but we can all be part of changing things for the better I just produced the world's first intersex movie which is called Pony Boy spelled P-O-N-Y-B-O-I mm -hmm. uh, it's a short at the moment but River Gallo who wrote uh, co-directed and stars in the film is working on the feature film script uh, I'm very keen to get that movie made as quickly as possible if mm -hmm. there's anybody out there listening to this who's got money, who wants to help us get that film made, please contact me. I'm <laughs> Angels Are Intersex on Instagram or Seven Graham Solutions on Facebook. But there are many stories that need to be told by Hollywood. Uh, we need to have intersex characters in, uh, you know, big television shows. Uh, we need to have intersex celebrities. Um, mm -hmm. There's two out intersex actors in Hollywood at the moment, myself and River Gallo. Mm -hmm. um, and we need there to be non-binary roles for us to play at the moment. Nearly yeah. every role I get every day from breakdown services, Actors Access, they're all male, female. Mm -hmm. You know, we need to move beyond that. Definitely. My other podcast is the Bechtel cast. We talk largely about the representation of women in movies, but we extend it to, you know, a more intersectional approach as well and talk about queer representation and representation of race and things like that. But in my study of film and representation, I have come across zero representation and visibility of intersex people um there's there it just isn't, isn't out there pony boy is literally the world's yeah. first intersex movie <laughs> which is why Stephen fry um came on board as an executive producer because he knew that was the case that mm -hmm. uh, this was the world's first intersex movie script and he uh, wrote all his friends and emma thompson double oscar winner also came on board as my co-producer mm -hmm. oh. um so the film got made it's a really beautiful short film it's gone around the film festivals around the world including Tribeca uh, it's in Poland this week uh, it's been to Australia to BFI Flair Festival in London but we really need to get the feature film made mm -hmm. so that people can go to the movies and see it Absolutely. it's a beautiful story oh wonderful check that out all the listeners I will check that out immediately um, are there any final thoughts any closing words you'd like to say anything else you'd like to share I just think it's really important that you're doing this podcast and I'm really grateful for that you're doing this podcast because doctors have so much power. Mm-hmm, yes. <laughs> and it's our body. Yeah. We really have the right to learn what's happening to us and to know what the options are. Mm -hmm. And there often are options. Right. And there are often lots of different ways that a medical situation can be handled. And I encourage you to really educate yourself if it's something that's affecting you or if it's something that's affecting your family member. And don't be scared of doctors. Mm -hmm. There's yeah. a lot of good doctors out there. Yes. And there's a and lot of And we're grateful to them. <laughs> yes. But there's also a lot of doctors who have had a very limited, very biased mm -hmm. education. Absolutely. Uh, and it's those doctors' responsibility to step outside of their culture and to look at research from other medical practices you know I'm a holistic health coach and I work with uh, Chinese medicine Ayurvedic medicine mm -hmm. Hawaiian medicine there's all sorts of different medical systems out there and it's important to take the best of all of the different medicines 
and come up with a care plan that yeah. is right for the individual. Absolutely. Well, Seven, thank you so much for being here, for sharing your wonderful perspective and insight. Uh, this has been absolutely incredible. I know you, you mentioned Pony Boy. Again, check that film out. Donate to, I don't know if you have any crowdfunding campaigns for to get the feature funded, but, you know, uh, listeners, do whatever you can. I uh, have a personal Patron site, which I could really use some support with. It's oh, yes. uh, seven... And my patron is Seven Graham, S-E-V-E-N-G-R-A-H-A-M. Everybody who's ever tried to make a movie will know that uh, in the early stages of making movies, you don't make any money. In fact, it's cost us a lot of money mm -hmm. to take Pony Boy the Short around the world. None yeah. of these film festivals pay. Mm -hmm. You have to pay to get yourself there. And yeah. um, so we're all completely broke. <laughs> uh, I want to stay in Hollywood doing the work that I'm doing. Um, so if anybody can help me personally, I promise you that I um, dedicate every day to uh, doing this work and yes. if I get to a point where I'm being funded above and beyond my basic needs then um, I give money to interact mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know I, I'm also here to coach and support other young creative intersex people mm -hmm. and people from the queer community um, you know I'm very much a person who believes in passing on what I know to other people and uh, empowering other people to tell their stories Yes, wonderful. And thank you for all the work you're doing. Um, and yes, subscribe and uh, donate, give money to Seven's Patreon. And you mentioned your Instagram and Facebook. Uh, say those handles again, just thank so people you. can follow um, you. Instagram is angels, plural, R-A-R-E, intersex, I-N-T-E-R-S-E-X. Uh, and on Facebook, I'm Seven Graham Solutions. Wonderful. Thank you again so much for being here. Um, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Sludge Podcast. You can uh, email me at sludgestorypodcast at gmail.com. Uh, if you have any stories you'd like me to share on the podcast or uh, any additional insights. And uh, you can also follow me personally, Caitlin here, uh, at Caitlin Durante on Instagram and Twitter. And uh, otherwise, yes, just... Um, Thanks for listening. Thank you once again, Seven, for being here. And uh, we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.